Hello, I'm Ray Reich, founder and CEO of RevOps Squared, and your host of the Metrics That Measure Up podcast. We talk to a wide variety of B2B, SaaS, and cloud thought leaders, executives, investors, and people just like you to discuss the metrics and benchmarks they use to make metrics-informed decisions. Now on to today's show. Welcome to today's episode of the Metrics at Measure Up podcast. Today, we are joined by Andy Byrne, CEO and co-founder at Clary. Today, we'll be covering three main topic areas with Andy, including revenue operations as a function and as a platform, revenue intelligence, is it an extension to RevOps or a business imperative? And third, how to measure the return on investment on revenue operations and revenue intelligence investments. Andy, please take a moment to give a brief background overview of your journey to becoming a guest on the Metrics Measure Up podcast. Well, first of all, Ray, thank you so much for having me on the podcast. Great to be here. Our journey has been a real fun one. I'm, I'm founder CEO of Clary. We started the company back in 2013. We're an AI-based enterprise SaaS platform that helps revenue leaders create more pipeline, drive more revenue, and boost the predictability and accuracy of the forecast. Our journey started back in 2013, but before that, actually, seven years of my life was dedicated to doing machine learning and natural language processing in a previous company we had created uh, that was called Clearwell Systems. So we have rooted in our R&D expertise a lot of great experience around analyzing large volumes of human activity and being able to make sense of that and predict the future outcomes. In that case, we were analyzing data to allow people to respond to litigation issues or securities investigations. So that, that was a great company. We sold that company to Symantec. And after that, we actually were thinking about this machine learning and machine learning in the enterprise. And we realized that there had not been a company built from the ground up to really focus on serving sales teams and helping sales teams by applying machine learning to help sales reps close deals faster, help managers drive more revenue, and help execs boost the predictability and the accuracy of their forecasts. So we took that thesis to Sequoia Capital. Uh, they loved that idea. It's our fourth company we've done with them. And we're off to the races. So fast forward to current day and why we're here with you. We've had tremendous growth over the last couple of years. COVID was a real accelerant for us because people needed visibility into their pipeline and their forecasts more than ever. And so we were 110% of our operating plan this year, which was amazing. We have got great companies like Adobe, Allied Bank, Perkin Elmer, and Cisco using the product to help them drive more revenue, get more efficiency using our revenue operations platform. And uh, the sky's the limit for us in terms of where we're headed with the company. So great to be here. And that's how we, that's how we landed here, Ray. Well, Andy, congratulations to all your success. Not only the 110% of operating plan, but a huge another investment milestone this year. Congratulations on that. But what's interesting is you started with that. Let's help sales organizations and sales leadership be more efficient and effective, especially as measured by predictability and meeting what the, their yeah. forecasts are going to be. However, 2021 has been a big year for the topic of revenue operations. And even, I believe, Clary has positioned itself as a revenue operations and intelligence platform. So first of all, let's start with revenue operations. How do you define revenue operations, Andy? 
Yeah, I mean, our, our definition of revenue operations is the people, technology, and processes that drive a company's end-to-end revenue engine, orchestrating marketing, sales, and the post-sales activity. Essentially, a end-to-end software process that helps the company drive growth. Okay, so you define it as both an organizational structure and a, a processor framework, correct? 100%. I think that there's both instrumentation that's required to be able to actually track all of the activity that's impacting a company's ability to generate revenue. There's also there's a cadence that people use, right, that a CRO uses to be able to execute, keyword, execute their motion throughout the quarter. Well, let me ask you this question, because over the last few years, we've seen a proliferation of revenue technology, and especially in B2B SaaS companies, all this sales tech and marketing tech and other customer success tech. And originally, kind of my view of revenue operations was this is the organization structure in process to align and integrate the entire data process and platform journey from customer acquisition all the way to customer retention and expansion. Do you think, Andy, we need another platform to enable this or can we just do it by having a process that integrates those three different steps? I do think that we're seeing that there is a desire by our customers. I'll tell you not what I think, but what our customers think. There's a desire for them to leverage a new class of platform that's purpose-built for the ground up to drive the revenue process. You know, half decade ago, Ray, customers thought revenue was just an outcome. And they realized actually, no, it's, it's not an outcome. It's a business process. They just weren't managing it like it like a business process. They would be in a CRM. It wouldn't do exactly what they wanted to do. So they'd export a bunch of stuff out into Excel spreadsheets. They'd be all over in Excel spreadsheets in marketing and sales and post-sales. And then that didn't work very well. So they'd go into... BI pages. They get Tableau or they'd get yeah, Power BI or they'd get Looker and they bounce in and out of all these interfaces. And they realized that that's not the right way to run the revenue process. And so they were looking for new ways to actually streamline, automate, and get efficiency across the end revenue process. The other point I'll make is that you know, as students of this market, as you may know, right, the, the title chief revenue officer didn't exist 10 years ago, right? And so now we're seeing the rise of the CRO. We're seeing organizational redesign underneath that CRO such that they're breaking down silos between marketing, sales, and renewals teams. So it's, it's more than just a platform and technology. It's, it's a real movement that's happening that's not too dissimilar to what we saw when we saw the rise of the CMO with marketing automation technology back in the, you know, in the 90s. Let's double click on this concept of the chief revenue officer, because I truly believe that a CRO should be the individual responsible for that integration of marketing, sales, and customer success across the entire customer lifecycle. However, in recent research we just finished last week, we found that when there is a chief revenue officer, only 24% of the time do they actually have marketing responsibility. It's more often, it's either a glorified name for the head of sales, or in about 38% of the time, they have sales and customer success. So my first question to you is, can a revenue operations 
process and function be successful without a truly integrated sales marketing and customer success organization? You know, it's interesting. I think the CMO, if you look at, you know, what they're responsible for, they're responsible for a brand, responsible for product marketing, they're responsible for pipeline, right? And if you think about those three elements of marketing, arguably the number one most important thing is pipeline. And so I, I do see that there's a much more intimate connection between the CMO and the CRO. Why does the CMO not find them underneath the CRO? It's because you know CMO want, is going to own brand. They're going to own product marketing. So there's other elements that I think keeps the CMO at the same level of the hierarchy as a chief revenue officer. Having said that, we're seeing a much more intimately oriented connection between the CMO and the CRO. Why does some of the SDR, why does SDRs fall under the CMO? right? And why do we have the, the notion of a VP of growth, right? A half decade ago, that didn't exist where they're just responsible for pipeline. And what you're going to see over time is this idea of the holy grail of attribution where we could not connect our marketing dollars into converted revenue. And that was elusive through the funnel is actually going to be seen as dial tone. And we're going to actually achieve that over time enabled by the revenue operations category and the new technology that we're seeing coming through. Well, what's interesting, you don't just talk the talk, you walk the walk, because I believe you took demand generation, which is classically part of marketing, and you integrated that with sales development enablement into one integrated function. How have you seen that impact your own pipeline growth? I mean, in, in tremendous ways. I think we not only have done that, we've also integrated value engineering in a way that I think is a, is a big thing that, you know, a, a lot of people will say to us, how do we measure the value of revenue operations technology? Well, the beauty is that, you know, if you look at, you know, CRM, you couldn't really, it's very hard to justify the CRM spend, but in RevOps tech, it's very easy because you're able to go in and prove we are reducing slip rates, we're increasing conversion rates, we're driving more pipeline, we're driving more growth for these companies. And being able to show pre-Clary, post-Clary, that we, we were an elixir of growth and driving more efficiency and predictability has been great for us. So combining those departments, going back to your question, and also adding a value engineering component to us has actually been a great lift for us that's caused a good part of our growth. Let me double click on value engineering because a lot of our listening audience may not know what exactly that function is. Can you define what the responsibility of value engineering is? Yeah, I think this is an art form that's going to turn into more of a science over time at scale. It's the ability to actually prove in an engineer-oriented way through mathematics, through models, that your software is going to deliver X amount of value to the customer. So they can use that in terms of them going to procure the spend that equals some sort of ROI and some sort of IRR on their investment. And being able to do that in a way that the real data actually shows that. So that's value engineering. A lot of cases, there's companies that just A, don't do it when they're scrappy startups and B, as they move more into scalable machine-like or machine-actual go-to-markets, they incorporate 
value engineering into their pre-sales motion, into their evaluation of the technology. And when you actually use it and prove it, that it adds value, it calculates engineering and actual business value that they can use to justify the spend, if that makes sense. That helps accelerate the ability for the customer to buy that software product, that technology product. I wasn't thinking we're going to talk about this, but it's such an interesting concept. It's often used to justify the initial investment and software. How do you actually deploy this post-sale to ensure that the value that was expected that justified it is actually being achieved? And what function is responsible for that? Is it in customer success or is it in sales? Yeah, what I would say is that in the case of all the customers that are using Clary, right? So they use Clary, you know, we initially, when we went to market, as I mentioned, we were a predicted sales management solution. We're just solving for sales. We actually saw Clary then organically without changing our product at all, it started to expand into marketing and marketing was using our platform to help them predict how much pipeline do they need to create for Q plus one and Q plus two. The renewals teams were coming into Clary because they were in Excel spreadsheets and they wanted to run a beautiful net dollar retention motion. So when we realized it was more than sales, it was all about revenue. And this was you know, about four years ago, we realized that, hey, this revenue operations thing is going to be relatively big. We realized that there's a lot of value creation post-sale. So now to your question about what we see happening when people use Clary in their post-sales motion because they've done the value engineering work, product has been sold, business justification has been validated. Then they have to actually come back in a post-sales motion. A lot of times they're using Clary to run that motion, right? They're running because there's upsell, there's cross-sell, right? There's net dollar retention that they need to drive because that's a big SaaS metric that matters to companies that are looking to go public in terms of their business model. Now, incorporating the pre-sales value engineering thesis into a post-sales motion and being able to actually, A, show usage, B, show actuals. Did you increase your conversions? Did you reduce your slip rates? Did you drive more pipeline? And making sure that's part of the post-sales engagement is critical in terms of actually justifying not only that the initial spend was right, but that you can actually convince the customer that they should actually spend more with you over time. And are you finding customers will actually allow you to come in post-sell and beyond product usage and product analytics, look at the business value that it's driving and actually be able to measure and substantiate that? 100%. I mean, I think that that's part of that should be part of everybody's sales motion, right? Post-sales. And that's my point about I think we're in the early innings. It's very, it's a very nascent process that people have post-sales process. They think about it after the fact, but a lot of our best customers from, you know, Zoom, Qualtrics, CrowdStrike, you know, have the ability to actually run this into their post-sales motion in a way that's world-class. And as a result, if you look at the performance of those companies, you know, it speaks for itself. I'm going to double click on net dollar retention because it's a passion of mine. But before I do that, let me zoom out for just a minute. And we've talked a lot about revenue operations, but there's also this new segment or term called revenue intelligence. And I think a lot of people are confused on what's revenue operations versus revenue intelligence. Can you shine some light on that, Andy? Absolutely. I mean, I think that they're hand in glove fit. 
revenue operations and revenue intelligence. So uh, revenue intelligence is the ability to get insights, right? To listen to a conversation for uh, an inner rep, to be able to see certain activity that's happening, to see relationships. These are what we call intelligence nuggets, nuggets of information that are forming in aggregate intelligence at a deal level that shows you, hey, how's the deal progressing? Now, as you, how do you use that intelligence to execute across the revenue process, right? So what happens is you've got these folks that are providing beautiful signal that's out there. And all, you know, a couple of companies that, that we love, Gong and Chorus, that do conversational intelligence, outreach and sales loft that are doing engagement level technology. You've got high spot and seismic that are enablement. Now, these are all signal, these are all different solutions in different categories, conversational intelligence, engagement, and enablement. They're actually producing a bunch of signal. And that signal is to intelligence, right? And we harvest all of that intelligence in our system, in our platform, and help that with, in terms of the execution that the CRO would run, whether it's opportunity management, managing their deals, inspecting pipeline, running forecasts, looking across analytics, across that whole execution cadence, if you will, that's inside the platform. So that's intelligence that we're aggregating up and time series snapshotting it and predicting the future based on all of that signal that's out there. Yeah, that's really innovative. Let me ask another question. My experience has been that most people focus this AI and revenue intelligence on the new customer acquisition process, because that's where one of the largest forecast yep. challenges have been and so much money spent there. But you mentioned net dollar retention. So just for our audience, net dollar retention really measures the amount of ARR from a cohort of customers when they're eligible for renewal this quarter versus a year ago. And it's now the number one factor on public company valuation. And there's something called an R squared factor. And it's about 0.5 to 0.52 impact on enterprise value multiples, which, by the way, is almost twice as big now as committed ARR growth. So with all that said, do you find that most of your customers will initially implement to be get more focused on intelligent signals for new customer acquisition or are more and more of your customers focused initially on expanding existing customer growth? Yeah, I'd say, you know, early days, right? It was just the former. It was just new logos. And they just wanted to get the sales team so much more productive. And as I mentioned, they, you know, they were in, you know, what a lot of our customers call the three-headed hydra. They're in CRM. It doesn't do what they want it to do. So they go into Excel. That doesn't do what they want to do. So they go into BI. And what <laughs> what's happened for us is we've started to see you know, a huge amount of growth in our business that is in that post-sales motion where they're dedicating sales teams that are actually running a post-sales motion because upsell, cross-sell, looking at your white space of where you have not penetrated deeply enough into the existing customer base is as important, if not a more important and arguably an easier way to drive more revenue because you've got happy customers, right? For being able to accelerate growth. So to answer your question, now we're seeing a massive amount of growth in the net dollar retention motion, as well as the new logo motion. What's interesting with net dollar retention, if you look at the high flyers, the snowflake, the Twilio's, the data dogs, 
Right. They also have a usage-based pricing model and or a product-led growth customer acquisition. Are you finding that even traditional subscription non-PLG companies are increasing their focus on existing customer growth? They're arguably more focused on that, right? Because that's their business is they're not a they're not just a SaaS business. They are, you know, a consumption business and the ability to be able to actually not just look at consumption rates, but look at the behavior that drove those rates or look at the the behaviors that they're not seeing use cases or workflows that are not being run that they think can drive a hell of a lot more usage. And so what we see is the ability to instrument that entire post-sales process that is A, looking at how are they using our product, right? How often are they using that? And that goes from various signals that you can pick up from simple as Mixpanel to WalkMe to Pendo, you know, to just taking an AWS usage feed and pulling that off, plus looking at how is your sales team engaging with that account? Are they single-threaded? Are they multi-threaded? Do they have access to the CFO? When's the last time we've been there? The marriage of those two in concert, seeing in one system is allowing customers to be able to actually go in, spend the right amount of time to A, articulate the value that they've delivered and B, earn the right to showcase other workflows that they could turn on to give the customer more value and in return, drive more revenue from themselves. So in the Clary Revenue Operations and Intelligence Platform, and did I pronounce that right? Is it Revenue Operations and Intelligence Platform or Revenue Operations Platform? Revenue Operations Platform. So so you ingest all these input signals, whether it's from a product analytics, from the CRM, from the sales engagement, from the CI, conversational intelligence, you ingest all of that. And then you have your own proprietary artificial intelligence to predict who's more likely to grow or churn? Yeah, I think you're going to see a lot of you know new innovations in this area from us and from other companies. We've calculated there's roughly 100 plus companies in the RevOps category, and that's that's growing. There's great companies that have you know bubbled up to the top that are multi billion dollar valuation high growth companies that yes are, are doing that. So like if you think about the technical thesis and how an investor thinks about it and what's the big macro change that's happening. When we first started the company, investors always said, hey, you need to be a system of record. And they were a hard stop on that. What's the new system of record, Andy? And we always had a thesis that, hey, being a system of aggregation um, is actually could be really, really interesting. And to be able to time series snapshot and historically track any signal that is impacting a company's ability to generate revenue and then start to accurately predict the future could be a really valuable data store that the enterprise has never, ever had. And, you know, I think that that's led to great growth for Clary. And, you know, we're just, just feel like we're just getting started, just scratching the surface of the value we're going to create using that platform. I'm no positioning guru, but you're become the system of intelligence. I love it because no one talks about that today. It's beyond aggregation. It's the intelligence you deploy to that. Yeah, so- and I, I may add to that, Ray. You know, I'll say what our our customers are saying is that we're a system of execution, which, you know, we hadn't really thought about. And, you know, if you think about a runtime system, right, it's one thing to go and look at some revenue intelligence, some signal 
right? Uh, of, hey, their emails have gone back and forth. Hey, they had these Zoom meetings or these team meetings, or they've had these WebEx meetings. They have this relationship connectivity. But it's another thing to actually run the entire revenue motion. And, and so that's something that we're hearing quite a bit is, is that being a system of execution. Um, and But it does start with first being a system of aggregation because you have to have the right data store. We always thought of that this is a data problem first. No one was doing machine learning at scale in the enterprise. Second, once you've done the aggregation through a purpose-built time series platform, how do you actually have the intelligence, the revenue intelligence? And then third, how do you actually become that system of execution that customers use to be able to drive more efficiency, growth, and predictability? You know, one of the biggest challenges, and we'll kind of wrap up on this one on the revenue intelligence thing. One of the biggest challenges is I just raised 150 million or 100 million, which God has been nothing like this fundraising environment right now. And congratulations yeah. to Clary. Yeah. But they're like, okay, well, I want to accelerate ARR growth. Everybody wants to accelerate ARR growth and sometimes profitability. But how do you know how much money to invest in new customer acquisition versus existing? How much money do you put in marketing versus in sales or sales development? So, Andy, the question to you is, how do you determine, as you're going through your next fiscal year planning, how much money to invest in growth of existing customers versus new customer? Well, you know, it's a function of where you think you're going to get the most growth, right? So it's relatively straightforward in that, you know, we look at the fact that we have the top decile net dollar retention right now in the industry. And we have, you know, very little new product that we have been shipping to market. We had our first acquisition of a small company called DealPoint in Portland, which we're really excited about, which will be, you know, another SKU. We've got other products that we're coming to market with that are going to be more SKUs that we'll be delivering that enable more value for customers and allow us to to drive more growth there. So we're building significant teams around that. So we look at how those products come out. We do assumptions based on the revenue we think we can drive and how much top of funnel from these new products. And then we look at the capacity that we have today and the capacity needs that we have that we need to drive that. Now we look at that piece and you look at the white space analysis, key point, white space analysis of your existing customers, right? What is the revenue potential there? You compare it to the white space analysis of the logos that you don't have yet in your ICP, in your total addressable market, right? And based on that and a capacity planning model, that will drive how we think about the level of spend in new logo versus net dollar retention over time. It's a pretty pretty straightforward modeling exercise. Yeah. Um, if I could add just a couple of thanks to that for our listening audience, because we kind of deduct all this research on what's impacting enterprise value to revenue multiples. So as we talked about, net dollar retention has the biggest impact, but how do you drive net dollar retention most efficiently? So we also recommend people look at CAC ratio for your new business acquisition motion versus your expansion. And the benchmarks are saying that existing customer expansion can be 2.5 to 3.8 times more efficient, i.e. cheaper. 
And that really helps you decide, wow, if I've got a multi-product portfolio or I have enterprise customers where I see a lot of different use cases across functions, it makes a lot more sense to double down on that existing customer expansion while it drives enterprise value. Does that make sense to you, Andy? It totally does. I think at those ratios, I, I'm sorry if you, if you were looking for mathematical ratios for us, no question. I mean, CAC, both new logo and existing in net dollar retention is something that we look at maniacally and that will that definitely drives conversations at the board level of how we're going to invest and where we think we're going to get the most growth. And we just so happen to have a, a relatively, I guess you'd call it a good problem is that we see a lot of growth in both areas right now. And you know, there's only so much you can do in terms of ingesting new sales reps, new engineers, new product. I mean, we're growing, you know, we're we're 500 people, we'll be 600 this time about by the end of the year, by the end of our fiscal, which is end of Jan. And how, how much can we ingest in terms of new new labor pool, both in sales and marketing and, and the engineering teams to make sure that we can maintain that growth and actually exceed the growth. So that that's a good problem to have. That And that's some of the debates that we're having at the board level, which is fun. Those are good debates. We need 110% of plan. It's a good discussion. Okay, we're going to pivot and do our last question. Sure. And I can tell you're very metrics-driven, and this is the Metrics at Major at podcast. The reason I initially reached out to you, Andy, was a post you actually made on LinkedIn, and it was the Metrics of Marriage. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, my wife's a CFO. I'm a metrics guy. It's like, <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah. it's a marriage made in heaven. But can you just share with our listening audience what was a catalyst for that? And what can people take away by using metrics in their own personal life? I mean, I just, I, I guess, you know, if you're not measuring yourself and have some sort of KPIs about your job as a spouse or your job as a father, uh, as a parent, then, I mean, it's just the way I think that I should be putting the same amount of discipline and rigor and measurement into my personal life as I do my work life. I, I don't want to look back and say, wow, I was an incredible steward of Clary. And yet I was, my family was second. So my family's always been first, but I've taken a, you know, sometimes much to the chagrin of my wife when we, you know, I, I'm over measuring how we think about our KPIs as parents, you know, and I'll give you an example. When our two boys were born, actually when they were about two or three, we we actually established a vision document for each boy. And we said, hey, what when they turn 18, what do we want them to say about certain dimensions of their childhood? And we put that down and we wrote down things like, you know, a passion for giving back an ability to um, appreciate academic rigor, wanting to be outdoors and be outside. These are just three of like, or two dozen elements that we thought about. We look at that every 90 days and we ask ourselves, my wife and I ask ourselves, how are we doing against that vision document, those elements inside of it? And it's no, it's no different than a quarterly business review that you do as a CEO. Or when I meet with my board every quarter, I've got KPIs and they want to say, how are you doing? And I want to have that same level of rigor and remarkable bar that I hold in business. I want to have that even better in my personal life. So that's that's how I think about it. Sometimes it drives my wife crazy, but it's worked out well so far. Well, Andy, I loved it. I think just like you. And my only advice to you is be very careful when you ask your children to fill out that net promoter score. It's got to be at the right time. <laughs> well, funny enough, on their 18th birthday, we bring it out. And we sit down and they score us. 
on each dimension on how we did. And we, we don't score all A's in every single dimension, right? And we sit down, we ask them, okay, well, what could we have done better? And I think parents don't do that enough, checking in with their kids on, it's one thing to say, what should their kids be doing to be world-class citizens in the world? But are we looking back at ourselves as parents and A, providing a place of safety for our kids to say everything that they want to us and feel like they're not going to be judged and B, making sure that they feel safe enough to tell us what could we do better as parents, right? And that is not done enough at all. Totally agree. And by the way, my next NPS survey goes out to my kids right after Christmas. Uh, well, I jo- you, you joke about it, but you should. You should actually follow up on that one, right? Exactly. Hey, last question, and it's a perfect transition. Sure. If you were to talk to a very recent college graduate who wants to be the next Andy Byrne, wants to be a great founder of a B2B SaaS or cloud company, what advice would you give him or her? I mean, the advice I give to everybody that I talk to, I tell this to my kids, I tell this to my friends, I tell this to new employees, that there's two things that matter. Just two things, tenacity and curiosity. You know, and and in my early in my career, when I actually started off my career, I was an SDR, first job, but I had a love affair with engineers. I, I love, they were the artists and I followed up with them and I wanted to hang out with them. And I was just super curious. And as a result, I got really, really good at my job. And I've always been curious about the art of creating something from nothing. And software is a beautiful instantiation of that. And then secondly, I always had a chip in my shoulder that no one would ever work harder than me. And it hurts. It's painful. And you have to be able to be endure that pain and know that pain is good. So those are my two things I tell to everybody. And if you can follow those two dimensions, tenacity, curiosity, and then, you know, now that I'm in my 50s, I've added a third empathy would be the third piece. And those three things that will take you so far in life. And if you stick that on your monitor and you ask yourself, have I done, have I really pushed the needle on those three things every day, every week, every month, you're going to be insanely successful. You know, Andy, I can't end it on any better information than that because almost every successful entrepreneur I've interviewed like you, they talk about curiosity, always being a learner, learning something new every day and having that drive to get up every day and accomplish what people say is not possible. Thank you so much, Andy, for being a guest on the Metrics to Measure It podcast. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Ray. Pleasure to be here. Really appreciate the time. And to our listening audience, if you're enjoying and finding benefit from the guests and content and discussions that we have, it would mean the world to us to go ahead and subscribe to us on your favorite podcast network and even give us a rating and a recommendation how we can have content that's even better for you. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Andy. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's Metrics to Measure Up podcast. If you would like to learn more about B2B SaaS metrics and benchmarks, please visit RevOpsquared.com.